Mr. Thank you. Well, this morning I'd like to continue our series on the gospel. Over the last several weeks, I think 10 or so weeks now, we have been considering different aspects and different implications of the gospel of God, and we've been paying special attention to how the gospel works in our everyday life. We've seen that it's practical, that it matters on our Tuesday afternoons. And one of the central ideas behind this series is the biblical idea that the gospel is not just a piece of information that you need to know in order to be a Christian. It is that, but it is more than that. Instead, the gospel is the power of God in our lives. We've seen that God saves us and changes us through the power of the gospel. In the last several weeks, we have been uh, considering more about the Christian life, specifically how we can sum up the Christian life in, with two words, repent and believe. We saw that in Mark chapter 1, 15 and 16, repent and believe. Repentance and faith are the two constantly, continually repeating activities in the Christian life. We don't just turn from our sins once and believe in Jesus, and we don't just repent of our sins once and turn to Jesus. Instead, no, repentance and faith are our life's work. They are the posture for living. We've described it like this. The Christian life is, to, is the call to repent, believe, and then do it again. Repent, believe, repeat. And we've talked about this lifestyle of, of repentance where we recognize that even as Christians, we still constantly struggle with sin. And so we constantly and repeatedly turn from our sin and look to Jesus. That is, this is repentance. Last week, we began to shift gears a little bit and talk about the faith portion of this equation. The believing, the faith in Christ. And, and we recognize that one of the biggest obstacles to faith, we've zoomed in on the biggest obstacle of faith in the Christian life. Do you remember what that is? idols, idolatry, right? We saw this, and you remember in, uh, in, in 1 John chapter 5, we were told, children, keep yourselves from idols. Be on guard. We looked at the first in the great commandment where, where, we, where Jesus taught us that we should love the Lord our God. How? With all of our hearts, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And so any time that we love God with just part of our hearts or part of our strength or part of our minds, what are we doing? We're loving something else. We're treating something or someone else as God. We're committing idolatry. And you see, because of our sinful natures, even as Christians, because of our sinful natures, this is a constant problem. Idolatry, the sin of idolatry, is behind every single sin that we commit. Which reminds us, we saw that we could say it like this, sin is what we do when we're chasing after one of our idols because we're not satisfied in God. Sin is what we do when we're chasing after an idol because God's not good enough for us. So we look elsewhere. This means anything can be an idol. Anything. Anything you run to other than God to find comfort, 
to find happiness, to find significance. That thing, that person is an idol. So we have to constantly be on guard, constantly vigilant, looking out for idols because they can be anywhere. We came up with a couple questions, ways that we can work to identify our idols. And I think the key question is this, what or who do you run to for comfort instead of God? What do you run to for comfort instead of God? Another way to put it is, what do you want so bad that you're willing to sin in order to get it? That thing or that person or those things, those are our idols. Those are what we really worship. Those are what we raise up in our hearts as supreme. And it's idolatry. I've been praying this week that the Lord would reveal to us on a personal level, on an individual level, the idols that we worship other than God. So last week we talked some about identifying our idols, and this week I want to talk a little bit about killing them, about slaying our idols. How is it that we dethrone them? How do we kick them off the property of our hearts? How do we send them out of the city? I've been told by those who know more than me that The Wizard of Oz is widely considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time. I consider it to be one of the creepiest movies of all time, but that, that's another conversation, right? So you've, you've seen the film, right? The, the movie tells about Dorothy, the Kansas native and her little dog, Toto, and how she and her odd friends make their way to the Emerald City in the hopes that the Wizard of Oz will give them what they really want. Dorothy wants to go home. The Scarecrow wants a brain. The Tin Man wants... A heart. And so through many dangers and toils and snares, the band makes their way to the Emerald City where they finally meet with the Almighty Wizard. The wizard terrifies them and manipulates them into doing dangerous things with scary flying monkeys, right? And then he breaks his promise and delays giving them what he had agreed to give them. Until Toto. Notice Toto is not a cat, right? Toto, anyway. Right? Until Toto finds, he, he goes and he pulls back the curtain and exposes the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard is not a big fire-breathing, big mouth that talks. He's just a middle-aged man, balding, in a little suit behind a curtain with a voice box. Once he was exposed, the Wizard lost all of his power over the Golden Brick Road Travelers. All because Toto pulled back the curtain on the Oz. Today we're going to try to do what Toto did. We are going to pull back, with God's help, pull back the curtains on our idols and expose them as frauds. We're going to see that, in fact, our idols are, our idols are no gods at all. And as we do, they will begin to lose their power over us. So let me go ahead and give you the key insight from Romans chapter 1 this morning before I read it. The key insight that we're going to see. Idols lie to us. They promise to give what only God can give. Idols lie to us and promise to give what only God can give. I invite you to direct your attention to God's word in Romans chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 18. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here's the key line. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is God's word. Will you please pray with me? Father, as I look out across this room and as I see the faces of people you have made whom you love, Lord, I'm reminded that I have nothing to give them. So, Father, you have to do this work. We have your word and we have read it, so now we ask, O Spirit of God, would you move in our hearts? Open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ in your word. Open our eyes to see our great need. Father, I pray, I beg, let my words fall to the ground. They can blow away. Let them be forgotten. Only let your word remain. Let it bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. To the glory of God and the glory of Christ and the glory of the Spirit, we pray. I ask this in your name. Amen. In this portion of Romans chapter 1, Paul is laying the foundation for the problem with the world. He's laying the foundation for what is wrong about the world. The problem in Romans 1 is the problem in your life and it's the problem in my life. The wrath of a just and angry and righteous God. We see that in verse 18, that that the righteous anger of God, it's aimed at the world because of sin. Paul goes on to explain to us the exact nature of that sin. And I hope you notice that what he does is he describes our sin as a worship exchange. A worship exchange. You see, God has revealed more than enough for us to worship him. He's revealed enough about himself and about his nature that all men are without excuse. Verse 18, the Bible says that that mankind, though we know this truth, we suppress it. We, We push it down. And then in verse 21, we read that that this suppression of God leads to darkening, the darkening of man's hearts, the darkening of our minds. Last week, we talked about how humans, all of us, not some of us, but all of us by our very nature are worshipers. You worship something. May not be God, maybe your girlfriend, 
maybe an idea about your fitness, maybe a monetary goal, you worship something. You see, if we don't worship God, we will automatically, by default, worship something or someone else. And this is the exact dynamic that we see here in Romans chapter 1, right? Paul calls it a worship exchange. Look down at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is idolatry. That's the essence of idolatry. It is an exchange of worship. Instead of acknowledging God as infinitely glorious and beautiful and life-giving and satisfying, instead of looking to God for, for ultimate happiness and, and satisfaction, we look to the stuff he's made, to the people that he's made. Food, entertainment, safety, art, whatever, right? This is the dynamic of idolatry. Instead of worshiping God the creator, we worship the stuff he's created. This dynamic is essentially the same for Christians and non-Christians. Right? We know that as Christians we still sin. So this dynamic is still working out in our hearts as we live in the flesh. Sin, we've said, is what we do when we're serving and looking to our idols instead of God. Sin is what you do when you worship your idols instead of God. But the key difference for Christians and non-Christians is that for non-Christians, their heart is totally dark. Some of you are here today and you're hearing God's word preached and your heart is completely dark. Nothing is resonating. Oh, how I pray that God would open your eyes and flood light into your heart. See, for Christians... We have light. The Bible teaches in verse 21 that the sin of idolatry makes our hearts and our minds black. And so for non-Christians, their hearts are totally black. But for Christians, even though we sin, and even though we foolishly and constantly and grievously turn back to our flesh in the deeds of darkness, we have new hearts. We have light. The light of Christ shines into our heart by the Spirit who has been given to us. You see, that's the difference. Christians have light. And I found, and the Bible teaches, that sin dies in light. So today, we are, if God gives us help, we're going to shine light into our hearts, and we're going to pray that God would expose the dark lies of our idols. You see, Romans chapter 1, it reveals the interworking of sin and the interworking of idolatry. It pulls back the curtain for us to see how our idols work. And if we can see that our idols are just a little bald guy behind a curtain with a voice box, that they're fake, they begin to lose their power over our lives. And we cease to worship them. The key idea that I'd like to present to you this morning is simple. Idols lie. Idols lie. Our idols operate. They function by lying to us. They promise you what only God can give. That's the idea behind a worship exchange. Sinners are somehow tricked into worshiping God's stuff instead of God. 
But how? How does that happen? How does that work, especially for us who have seen the glory of Christ? How does that happen? Well, the key comes in verse 25. There's an exchange. Exchanging, look at this verse, the truth about God for a lie. Idols lie. Let me draw your attention this morning to three keys to understanding how idolatry works. We talked about this some last week, but we're going to talk about it from a different aspect this week. Three, three keys that will help us understand how idols work. And that what this will do, I pray, is this will prepare us to know how to knock them off the throne of our hearts. That we would worship the only God. The first thing I'd like for you to notice is this. Idols make promises. Idols make promises. This is implied behind the concept, behind the biblical idea here of a worship exchange, a truth exchange. We see in verse 25 that when we give in to sin, we're being duped, right? We're believing a lie and we're rejecting the truth of God. Instead of buying into the truth of God, we buy into, we purchase the bill of goods that our idol of the hour is selling. That's how idols work, right? They make some sort of promise. This girl will make you happy. It doesn't matter if you're disobeying me. They, they, they trick us into selling some sort of lie. Remember in John chapter 8, do you remember how Jesus talks about Satan? He pulls back the curtain on Satan for us. He says, John chapter 8, verse 44. And he, that is Satan, has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. That's what Satan does. Satan uses the, the mouth of idols to lie to us. He is the great dark puppet master. There's all sorts of lies that we buy into. We, could, we see them all throughout the scriptures. He's very creative in his wicked art of deception. They all work by appealing to the desires of our flesh. But here are a couple of, I think, the most common lies that we believe from our idols. I think one of the key ones is this. I can satisfy you, and God can't. All right, I can, I can satisfy you. I can make you truly happy, says your sin. This is the lie behind your porn and your drunkenness and your shopping addiction. This is the lie behind our overeating and our obsessions with whatever hobby we're into. This is what is implied. What's implied here is that God can't satisfy you. That, that's what the idol is really saying. That's the, that's the promise, right? I can. It's the lie that the wife buys into when she's looking to her marriage for happiness instead of to God. A great marriage is what I need to be happy. A great marriage is what you need to be happy. If you just have that, you'll be completely and finally totally happy and safe. Perhaps one of the most common lies that our idols tell us is this. You can be in charge. All right, this is the lie that Satan used in the garden. You can have it all and you can have it now. You don't have to, you don't have to wait. I think this is where we as Christians get so hung up. We believe God. We're, we follow the dynamic of Romans 1, right? We know there's a God, and we even, we even believe him. We even like him, right? We, we know there's a God. We know that he's there, but we still turn to idols because we don't like God's timetable. Isn't this one of the greatest struggles of your Christian life? 
God's timing? I believe God, I, I trust God, but my goodness, why is he so slow? Why is he so slow in finding me a husband? Why is he so slow in healing Emma? Why is he so slow in changing your husband or solving this financial problem? Why is he so slow? I believe this is, this is exactly what happened to Israel. Exodus chapter 32, you remember? The Israelites, they certainly believed God. I mean, my goodness, they had just seen the ten plagues. They had just seen God flex his muscles and bring ten plagues of terror down on Egypt and release the Israelites from the grip of Pharaoh. They had just seen him part the Red Sea. They'd seen bread fall from the sky. They've seen water flow from a rock, right? They saw God leading them with a cloud of fire at night. And yet here they come to the mountain at Sinai. Moses is up on the mountain talking with God. They could still see the smoke. I think they could probably even still hear the thunder. And then what do they do? They're waiting. They're waiting for Moses to return. In Exodus chapter 32, look what they say. Follow, see if you can track this dynamic. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together at Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Waiting. That's the struggle, isn't it? God just isn't on our timetable. And when we can't wait anymore, we turn to golden calves. Sure, you may still believe that God is glorious and that he's powerful. You may even believe that he's all-satisfying. But he's making you wait. And your idols won't. So you turn to your idols. There is an unpredictability about God that we just are not okay with. He, it, 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 it's so uncomfortable. It's so unsettling. So our idols swoop in and offer us a management position. Right? You can solve this now. You can be in control. You see, all of us, we want to be God. We, are, we at least want a God that we can control. Something that serves us instead of demanding that we serve it. We want a God that we can control even if it serves us poorly, even if it destroys us, even if it makes us miserable. I mean, that's the appeal of our idols. You can have it now. God will make you wait, but you can have it now. Comfort, relief, pleasure, security. You can have it now. All you have to do is sin to get it. Yet the one true God demands again and again all throughout the Scriptures that we wait upon the Lord. That we trust Him with, with our years and our days and our hours, even when we can't see His hand. That we trust His heart instead. But that is so hard, isn't it? My goodness, that's hard. So we turn aside to our idols simply because we want to remove the uneasy feeling of having to wait and depend on God. We haven't officially denied God or abandoned the faith. We've just found a shortcut. 
through the wilderness. But our idols are Satan's puppets, and they always speak Satan's lies. Our idols lie to us. But here's the other thing to understand. Idols can't deliver. They can't, they can't cash the check. They can't deliver what they promise. We see this in so many ways in the Scripture. Some of them are hilarious and comical. Look back down at verse 23. This isn't a funny one. There's others. But look down, look down at verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? Images of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's a truth that's echoed all throughout the prophets and all throughout the writings and the histories. Do you know why rocks make terrible gods? Because they're rocks. They're great for paving roads. They're great for building walls, right? They're great for your flower beds. They're even great to put on your finger. But they're not God. Do you know why your phone makes a terrible God? Because it's silicone and pixels and wire. Do you know why your football team makes a terrible God? Because it's a bunch of college boys in tights chasing a ball. Do you know why ice cream makes a terrible God? Because your body was not made to enjoy food, but to enjoy God. This is so key and central to dethroning the idols in your life. You must understand, you must come to see that your idols, they can't deliver. They can't satisfy you. This is why you go back again and again and again and again. One author has called it, it's like a banquet in a grave. Your idols are writing checks that they can't cash. They're making promises that they can't deliver. Why? Because they're blocks of wood and high fructose corn syrup and boys in tights, right? They can't deliver. We need to see the silly futility of our idols in order to help us guard against being so entranced by their lies. God has made some incredible things. He has. Football's great. Leather handbags are great. Gummy bears are great. Sex is great. Movies are great. Your kids are great. But none of those things were made to satisfy you. They're made to point you to God. They're made to show you the Creator. They are created to teach you what God is like. They aren't God. They point to God. They're created, not creator. And they can't satisfy. And we're foolish. We're stupid when we expect them to satisfy us. Our idols will always be bitter and unsatisfying. It's one of the things I pray for my children. Oh God, let them be miserable when they sin. It's one of the mercies of my life that God has constantly frustrated me in my sin, that I've tasted its bitterness, and slowly he's changing me so that I don't want it anymore. I've tasted it. I've tasted it. I've seen that God is good. He alone can satisfy. I pray this for our youth all the time. Don't let them buy into the bill of goods this world is selling. It's smoke. It's mirrors. It's wormwood. It's bitterness. You remember what Moses did when he came down from the mountain? He saw the golden calf, and he's got the very words of God in his hand. And what's he do? 
he grinds up that calf into powder and he mixes it in water and he makes him drink it. Your idols will always leave a bitter taste in your mouth. And if you can't taste the bitterness of sin, you have lost your taste for God. God help us. Our idols cannot deliver on their promises, so they're always going to leave us unsatisfied. So we've seen today that, that our idols, they, they get their power by making these false promises. But they lie. They're liars. They can't deliver on their promises, and they can't satisfy us. Only God can. Which brings us to a final point from Romans chapter 1. God is God. It's profound, isn't it? Your idols aren't gods. God is God. Look back down at the end of verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He's blessed forever. Amen. You see what, you see what Paul does? Right? He, he's responding in worship. He's correcting the lie with the truth about God. Your family won't satisfy you. Your bass boat won't satisfy you. Your job won't satisfy you. Your kids won't satisfy you. But I have great news this morning. There is a God in heaven who can satisfy you. And you can find him in Christ. He is infinite in wisdom and power. And guess what, church? You were made to know him and enjoy him in worship. This has been the greatest discovery of my Christian life. The Christian life is not about just obeying and just going to church. It's about knowing and enjoying God. I see and I meet so many miserable Christians who are so bored by God, yet they haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can taste Him, church. You can know Him. He's more satisfying than whatever variety of sin the deceiver cooks up for you. Taste taste and see that he's good. If you're lost today, if you are chasing wholeheartedly after the things of the world, turn to Christ. Your sin is going to lead you to death. It's the only future for you apart from Christ. Taste and see that he's good. There's so many Christians who they like God just because he promises to get them out of hell. I don't want to just get out of hell. I want God. I want to be happy. I want to be satisfied. And if his right hand has pleasures forever, I want to be at his right hand. And if God's in heaven, that's where I want to be. Taste and see that he's good. Boys and girls, students, the faith of your parents is not just a pack of beliefs. The promises that are true. Taste and see that he's good. None of that was in my manuscript. Do you see how this helps us dethrone our idols? Do you, do you, do you see, what, what, once we've pulled back the curtains of our idols, once we understand how they work, what happens? We are in a position to get rid of them. We just knock them off, right? We see that they don't, they don't have the power that we thought. So I'd like to offer you this morning steps 
to dethrone your idol. Maybe steps to cut their head off, right? Go read 1 Samuel 5. Chop the heads off your idols. I'm calling this, it's a supernatural work, right? Super, what do I call it? Supernatural steps to dethrone your idols. I call it, it's supernatural because this is divine work. This is not a self-help type of philosophy. This isn't just, you know, get your idol problem under control and carry on with your life. You need the Spirit of God to help you with this. Rejecting idols is really hard work, and it's the life's work of the Christian. The first step is this. You've got to identify your idols. If you don't know what they are, you're not going to do much good in getting rid of them. Our idols lie to us, and they hide from us. So we need help seeing. And sure, you can ask a mature friend. You can ask a spouse or someone who walks with God. You can ask them to, to help you, to help you think about the dynamics of your life and, and see what's going on. But it's far better to, to ask the God of light to help us. In Psalm chapter 139, we know this, this famous verse. It's a prayer of the psalmist. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my concerns and see if there be any grievous or idolatrous way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Christian brother, sister, run to the Lord. Ask him to test your heart and reveal your idolatrous anxieties. As we said last week, one of the surest ways to identify your idols is ask, what are you anxious about? You can trace your anxiety back to some idolatrous desire in your heart. Our fears and our anxieties lead us to our idols. So you have to identify them. Secondly, and with that, is you have to identify the sin beneath your idolatry. I like to call this in the counseling room, the sin beneath the sin, right? What's the sin behind that sin? Remember, we want to pull up our sin by its root. So we have to be careful. We don't want to just pluck off the bud. We want to pull the whole thing out, right? So we have to identify it and be careful that we're not just treating symptoms. It's so tempting to just try to stop our bad behavior, especially in a church where it's cool to obey, right? Or, or in, in, a, in a relationship or in a family where being Christian is cool, right? It's so tempting, right? We, we are legalists at heart. To, to this tempt, the temptation is to Start to, to try to treat our symptoms of sin instead of the sin itself. My own experience in my life, and as I try to help others think about this, is that we as Christians are so attached to our idols, we don't want to give them up. Even when we see them. The Lord's revealed some of those to me as I've been preparing this, and I don't want to give them up yet. So I'm praying that God would break my heart. So I'm fighting See, the temptation is we convince ourselves that we can keep our idols if we just tweak them a little, right? I heard one author describe it like this. It's, it's so much easier to rearrange our flesh. But that's like putting a Band-Aid on the cancer of our idolatry when what we need is an amputation. Right? We don't want to just treat the symptoms of our idolatry. We want to treat the disease of our idolatry. And if that means we got to cut off an arm, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to cut off the arm. We're so prone to band-aiding something when it needs amputation. 
As I've said before, I think this is why so often as Christians, our repentance efforts, they fail. Because we're not getting at the root of our problem. I mean, have you ever asked why is it that you talk bad about other people? Right? Are you convicted about that? Because the Bible says don't gossip or to use words to build up, Ephesians 4. Why do you do that? Could it be because you're insecure and, the wor- and you worship the idol of security? I mean, why is it that you really eat too much food? Maybe you worship the idol of comfort. I mean, why do you really get so angry at your children? Maybe it's you've made an idol out of respect or a good family. Why is it that you really work so hard? Maybe you worship the idol of success. You see, we have to do the hard spiritual lifting of identifying the sin that is beneath the sin. The sin beneath the sin. But then we're called to confess and to repent. To confess and repent. Once we've identified the sins that really are at the root of our sins, we must confess and repent. We've talked about this at quite a bit of length in recent weeks, so I won't repeat it all, but a key component to see this morning is this. that You see that when we're confessing our sin, what we're doing is we're agreeing with God about what He said about our sin. And so with idolatry, we are, we're owning it. We're, we're owning and confessing that we've been tricked that we've bought into some lie, that we've bitten on the bait, but there's a hook. And that's how idols work, remember? They, they make promises for happiness, and they're not able to keep them. They promise to us what only God can give us. And so an essential understanding to this, the key offensive weapon when you're fighting off your idols, when you're putting them to death, is to recognize idols can't satisfy. They can't deliver like God can. The more you believe that, the more you become convinced of that, the less you'll run to them. Right? The less you'll run to them. As I think about the sanctification of my life, such a big part of it has been, I've gone to my sin again and again, and I've found it's just not satisfying. But I've tasted that God is. And so I lose my desire for those sinful things, right? They, our, your idol can't give you the identity and the security and the comfort that you truly long for. Only God can. So what you'll find is that as you grow, that in the moment of temptation, right, you may, you may be thinking at the end of a bad day, you know, right now, I really in this moment want some comfort. I, 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 just, I, need, I really just need to feel good. But, but I know Right? I don't feel this maybe, but right now I, I know that ultimately food or a quick hit of sex or a quick game on my phone or a quick harsh word, right, that make, make me feel good for a moment, but that's not really what I need. That, that's, that's the idol of immediate satis, unsatisfying comfort. Right? It's a lie. It, it doesn't exist. I don't need that. I need God. I need comfort that lasts. I want happiness that lasts. And so expose the lies of your idols. Talk back to them. You talk back to your idols. No, that's a stupid idea, right? I don't need that. I don't need that sin. I've got happiness in Christ. Talk back to your idols. Correct them with truth. 
Renew your mind with the truth that there is no created thing that can ultimately deliver what you're longing for. You will always be left feeling empty. You will always be left longing for more. Because sin never provides ultimate satisfaction. Ever. It leads to hell. That's the opposite of satisfaction. You were made to find ultimate delight in the creator, not his creation. It's all going to be destroyed, right? So the final step is to worship your way out of sin. If our idolatry is a worship problem, then our idolatry has a worship solution. We've worshipped our way into this sin, and so now we need to worship our way back out of the sin. This is really this is what Paul does at the end of uh, verse 25, where, where he is correcting it, right? So they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they've worshipped the uh, creature rather than the creator. And then what's he say? He's blessed forever. Amen. Right? He, he responds in, in worship. Only God is the true creator. Only he is worthy of your ultimate praise. So the question in the moment of your temptation is this. The way that you put on righteousness is this. You ask yourself, how does God provide the thing that I want? How does God meet this desire that I'm longing for? You long for approval? You've got approval in Christ. You long for comfort and food? Your body wasn't made for food. Your body was made to know Christ. Are you craving the respect of others? Only God's truly worthy of praise. Turn your attention to him. You see, what you'll find is that when you honestly take your desires to God, what he will do is he will purify them, and then he'll satisfy them. He'll purify them, and then he'll satisfy them. And he'll reveal to you how your needs are met in Christ. So often we stumble in our sanctification because we try to get rid of a sin, which is providing some sort of pleasure, and we don't replace it with some other pleasure. Right? You can't put off your sin and not delight in Christ. You'll just find some other sin. It's idol swapping. Right? Do you know that you can worship comfort and overeat, and then you can switch and worship vanity and exercise? It's just idol swapping. We're called to look and to see how God satisfies all of our desires in Christ. But often you have to wait. But go to him. You can trust him. Let's pray.